This hour of K-R-O-Y Music Power is dedicated to you in North Highland. In the middle of your day at Croy, add one Bob Sherwood. A Croy reminder to participate in group guitar lessons for teens that start today at 1 o'clock. This be the last day. This be the nitty and the gritty, so get on it. And also a free lecture on yoga, Friday the 28th at 8 p.m. That's how to be a catcher for the New York Yankees. Yoga bearer. <laughs> Bob Sherwood Show, Croy Pick-A-Pet Time. It's 11.58 now, 79 degrees. That's John Sebastian, the loving spoonful with Darling Be Home Soon, answering a real Linda request. And when you come home, darling, don't forget to put the lights outside and turn off the cat. What? Bow, bow, bow! How the hell are you? I know you, I know you had some, you've had some uh, physical challenges lately. There's some beauties. Uh, to be frank, if not for my child bride, you'd be talking to somebody else because I had to take uh, I had emergency open heart surgery uh, in January of last year, uh, and it happened because uh, I suddenly had gotten ill. Didn't know I'd had three strokes previously. I had no idea I had them, and I was having a lot of problems with strength. And they sent me to a, a local hospital. And when Carol, my wife, uh, she saw the report from our internist, which was like a cover your butt sort of thing, and went to a, another doctor that we had previously had in New York. And he said, ambulance now, New York City. And they wow. put me in Lenox Hill Hospital where a cardiologist did the work. And uh, that's the only reason I'm here. So I've been doing a lot of therapy between now and then. Uh, I'm still weak. I have balance problems, but I'm definitely recovering. So that's the good news. Yeah, it certainly is. What are you, if I may ask, what are you, 80? Sorry? Are you 80 now? Just hit 80 in February. Yeah, that's about what I thought. And, and as my doctor pointed out a couple of visits ago, he said, you're working on somebody else's time at this point. He said, let's be happy and keep doing what we're doing because you're four years beyond or six years beyond where you should have gone. What a bit, what a bedside manner. <laughs> Thank yes. you so much. Oh yeah. man. Well, all right, let's go back. Let's go back a couple of years. Uh, I was trying to think about the first time I met you and I don't remember that, but I do remember the first time I do remember the time you phoned me. And this was in uh, 1970 and uh, told me that uh, I got the job on Croy, K-R-O-Y in Sacramento uh, as the weekend kid. And I remember your exact words. You said, well, listen to your tape. And as far as I'm concerned, you're it. And I'll tell you something, Bob, that remains to this day, the second most exciting. I better make that the third. I got married a couple of times. The third most, <laughs> most exciting time of my life, day, that, that, was, that was the biggest thing that ever happened. And certainly in my career, that remains the biggest, most exciting thing that ever happened to me. Well, co considering the fact that you were promoted by Dwight Case, with whom we both had enormous respect and strong feelings, to run a couple of his radio stations at RKO when they were the giant of the industry, that's saying a lot. And I was 21 then. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's right i caught you when you were only 17 <laughs> right yeah i don't you know i don't know how to explain uh people who are uh, you know who, who can't remember uh, radio in the 60s but that uh, to me that was you know if if not the golden age of radio the second golden age it was totally different than the first but 
you know, if you think about it back in the sixties, when did you start at Croy? Like 65 ish somewhere in there. I started, uh, in, uh, 1967. Oh, okay. Johnny, Hyde, Johnny Hyde hired me. Yeah. Um, clearly not for my pipes. Uh, <laughs> Johnny didn't hire people who had the big booming voice. He hired people that he thought could communicate and also connect with, with other staff people, uh, in a relatable fashion. And I fit that. And of course we had Chuck Roy, who is about as unlike a disc jockey uh, of, yeah, right. of form as you will know on the planet. <laughs> and yet he had amazing numbers because he communicated. He was believable. He was fabulous. He yeah. used to drive me crazy when I was a program director, but that's another story. <laughs> I grew up listening to Croy and I literally grew up listening to Croy. I was born and raised in Sacramento from the time I was, it was, I don't know, 63, 64, something like that. I started listening to Croy. Also listened to KXOA, which was big at the time. And then for years, they went back and forth. But I uh, used to go, and this is really for old-time Sacramento natives who remember this, that I went, used to go uh, go downtown Sacramento. Sometimes I was 12 years old. I would get on a bus from North Highlands and go by myself with my cousins. And we would go upstairs above the old country-made dairy. They were just across from the Capitol on 11th Street. And uh, in the in the magic of this dark stairway, we were brought into a reception area where a sweet little lady would just smile and welcome us in. And behind her was a big plate glass window. And behind that was one of the superstars of our era, whoever it happened to be at the time. And that experience and falling in love with what I was hearing on radio I had no doubt before I was 10, I said, this is what I, this is what I'm going to do. And uh, it's the only time in my life I actually fulfilled something like this, <laughs> but it was so big when, when I first got, when I first got to Croy and when you guys were all working there, you mentioned Chuck Roy. Uh, there was also uh, Martin Ashley, the wonder rabbit uh, and G Gene Lane. And before him, T Michael Jordan and uh, 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 Mr. Lee, and uh, I'm leaving somebody out. Jack Hammer. Jack Hammer didn't work at Croy, did he? Yes, he did. Okay. I remember all these guys. And he used to go down to the radio station there when it was on Arden Way and uh, stand out in front of the window. And uh, with all the other kids, we'd just watch. And we could look inside the studio. I mean, y'all would wave at us and sometimes talk to us through the little uh, speaker, the uh, drive-in movie speaker that somebody swiped and put out there. And so I grew up, I grew up doing that. And all through high school, we would go down on a Friday or Saturday night and hang out in front of the radio station. And suddenly, and I mean, I was barely out of high school. I, I was inside on the other side of the glass. And that just, that thrill, uh, the, the unbelievability of it all just ne has never left me. And I think it has probably had more to do with the, the development of me as a person and my entire life since than any other, any other uh, experience in my life. It would just also I'll tell you, if I may interject a memory I have of the window. You want to interject yet? This is supposed to be an interview of you. Yes, please. It, I'll get emotional as heck because when the draft began in the sixties, I was doing, either nine to noon or 10 to three at the time, uh, the adult part of the day. And uh, we found out that they were going to be giving the 
numbers of people who were eligible for the draft on the on the wire, the teletype live. And so we announced in just a, a casual Croy way, because we were so involved with everything in the town mm-hmm. that we were going to give those numbers live to people as they came across the, the wire. And I'm telling you, there were literally thousands of people from the colleges in particular who were of that age that it affected yeah. them who showed up at Croy to listen to that little speaker you talked about. And as stuff <laughs> would come through, I'd take a break and give the numbers. And I remember the emotion of as, as doing it through my show when somebody would hear a number that was so opposite theirs that they were they were they were safe yeah. and the big grin but also the pain of the people whose whose birthday was called out yeah. which would make them eligible for the draft it was a, such a powerful thing yeah and it's just one of those things that croy did because that's what we did right yeah that's for sure yeah just to kind of set that stage for for people who uh, were not of that age don't remember that time what you're talking about was uh, the draft lottery, which started then uh, during the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War was terribly unpopular at the time, and it turns out that we were right. It was a really bad thing. And getting yes. having your number come up in uh, you know high order, I don't remember what it was at the time, but probably anything above about the first third of, of uh, the entire uh, entire year, if your birthday came up in that first third or, or half, uh, that was not just that you are eligible to be drafted. It's like it, you're likely to be drafted and you're very likely to end up in a rice paddy 10,000 miles away with a white rifle. That's exactly right. And it was devastating. And I remember because I was, I was in college at the time and I didn't even care to go to college. I just did to get out of, get out of the way of that draft. Um, it was a horrible time. And yet, you know, you started working there in the summer of love. It was also one of the greatest times in the history of the country. I, I believe that not just because I, I lived it, but, you know, everything that has happened socially and culturally since good and bad, I think, uh, came from that time. Yes. I will tell you that Croy got a lot of prominence during that summer of love because even though we had this lousy signal, we were a class four radio station, which meant a thousand watt day, 250 watts at night. So you couldn't even hear it outside the city limits in some areas. And also the stations from San Francisco with whom we were in, in battles for ratings and listenership, they came charging up between the two mountains in California, the coast range and the Sierras. And they hit our area harder than we did <laughs> and for, for the station to be as powerful. As it was it had to do with that station because that we weren't really programming against San Francisco. No, we were programming for Sacramento. Well, not, we, not, not only were you not, but I mean, you, it made perfect sense. As I say, I was as a, as a local boy, I was a listener. Uh, you know, it's not, at some point I had, uh, great aspirations to get to work in San Francisco, but by God, you all were our radio station. You did things for us. You were interacting. I met, uh, met Croyd jocks at our junior high school dances. You know, you had activities, you guys probably, it seemed like you spent as much time out in the community as you did behind that window on Arden way. 
I mean, it was really, really an interactive radio station. Yes, yes. It, uh, Gene Lane in particular was, was famed for, and he was the ultimate hippie of all time. Yeah. Maybe T. Michael Jordan as well, but the two, our two night guys who had huge numbers, by the way, they had 30 and 40% share of audience. <laughs> and I know it's a different world now with FM and down and streaming and all that stuff. But the fact is, even in those days, you didn't have a station with those kinds of numbers. But these guys were so good and they connected with the music and the town. And in the case of Gene, he used to go to schools. He was very big on the on, on the human environment. Yeah. And he'd bring lungs that were right. diseased by, <laughs> by cigarettes. But then he'd be, be back behind the gymnasium when he was done with a group of teenagers smoking grass. <laughs> if Dwight found out about that, our GM, he would have gone completely goofy, let alone our governor at the time, Ronald Reagan. But. <laughs> right, right. So, excuse me. I uh, I left Troy in 1973. I guess you left there probably about 72 sometime. I left uh, October 71. 71. Oh, okay. And as I recall, you went on to Milwaukee. That's right. I went to work primarily because of Robert W. Morgan, and in my list of the great talented jocks of all time. I'm uh, sorry, Robert L. Collins. It includes Robert W. Morgan, Robert L. Collins. Uh, there's just a handful of these enormous talents. And and Robert, Bob and I used to f- play around together, never got into serious trouble, but we, we were on the edge a lot. And he had an opening at night and I took the job. And I frankly, I took it because I had gotten a few offers and inquiries from people because of the success of Croy. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget going to Dwight Case, our GM, uh, and being crushed when I told him I was getting calls from some people and I didn't know quite what to do. And he said, take it. And I said, what? How are you going <laughs> to let me go? I'm your program director. I'm a genius. And no, his view was, you've been very successful, particularly as a music director and as a program director when Johnny Hyde left. And he said, you're 29 now. He said, that's a big deal. Next year, you're 30, and it's to be expected. And I, again, I was crushed, but I thought, you know what? There's an opportunity there. I'm going to take it. And as much as I missed Croy and loved the time I was there, it was the right move to make for me. Yeah, yeah well, Dwight, you talk about something special. The radio station was a, a, a Dwight case creation uh, at, at the root of it all. He's the one that hired Johnny, and Johnny's the one that instituted music power and brought the rest of you all on board but it had to do with Dwight and the type of person he was. And even though he really, and I, I've thought about this before, and I remember thinking when I was working there that Dwight is like, wow, Dwight's like my dad's age. And he probably wasn't. And I'm, no, I'm sure he wasn't that much older than you, but he was a father figure to all of us. Well, I'll tell you one thing about Dwight. He wanted to be a program director. Uh-huh. And you may have seen that when you came on full-time after I left. Uh, and they fired Gene Lane. Uh, Dwight, he had a real strong PD program director in Johnny Hyde. And I wasn't as strong as, but I was maybe clever at maneuvering things. And I wouldn't let him screw with my radio station. (laughs) And I'm sure he was frustrated, but he never overruled us on basic things that were the operation of the station. 
Um, and, and I think once I was gone and he made Chuck Roy program director, I adore Chuck Roy. He'll always be a friend. I'll always be appreciative of his talent. But he wasn't a program director. I mean, yeah. he wasn't motivated. He didn't want to do it. Right. I, I wanted to do it big time. And Johnny definitely wanted to be. But the minute we were gone, he's got Chuck. Dwight can play with the station. And I'll just tell you anecdotally, there was a period where I had just taken over as PD, which would have been 1970, I guess. Johnny had left. And I was with my then family up in Lake Shasta, uh, north of Sacramento, a long ways, mm -hmm. Oregon border. Yeah. And I, I called the station. Uh, we didn't have cell phones then. but And I talked to somebody, and they told me that Dwight's been down here and he's kind of moving the news around. He's doing, and I went nuclear. <laughs> we had a, a, a well-programmed station. Don't screw with it. And I drove back to Sacramento and I was never good at taking on Dwight. But at this time we had a lunch at Christie's elbow. Room, I was famous. I knew it. I knew we were coming to Christie's. And before I, I fell over incapacitated, uh, <laughs> we established the fact that he was going to run the station and he could do whatever he wanted. And I would follow, but don't screw with programming because he just wanted to play with it. He, he, he was so fascinated with it and he was really good at it, but occasionally he drift over there someplace where he really didn't belong. So. Oh man, that's great. I remember, I can remember um, one morning at least I was in there and I must've been I don't know why I was in there because I was working when you were still there. I was working, I think seven to midnight before that overnights, but uh, I never, I, I never, I, I was in there as much as I could be, you know, uh, you know, I might as well have set up a cot, but uh, so I was in there during the day one time and I remember you coming in and uh, you just looked horrible. <laughs> and I said, what's, what happened to you? You said, I went to lunch with Dwight yesterday. Oh, <laughs> Christie's <yeah>. elbow room. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah, whenever he wanted something big enough, that's where we had to have the meeting. And I would try and control <laughs> myself. But there they are, and they keep pouring, and you keep drinking. And pretty soon, I mean, I I, I would have given away 30 commercials an hour if I was left there long enough before passing out. <laughs> and I, I'll tell you another thing about Dwight, if I may. Yeah. There was a time, and this will not relate to many people beyond you, but when I was doing promotion, I'd been hired away from, from radio at a, a, a dreadful time when all the finance people came in and deregulation was happening. I was so discouraged. Any event, Columbia Records hired me to do promotion because of my contacts with other radio people. And it was going very well. And I got into a monstrous battle with Paul Drew, oh. who other people that are in radio knew about. <laughs> I mean, this was this could be a career ender for anybody else but Columbia. But we had such good people local locally. I could be banned from the radio station; it wouldn't make any difference. Our guys were able to deliver. And in the midst of it, Dwight called me one day in my office at at CBS to find out if he could do anything. At the time, he was president of the RKO right. broadcast chain, the most important right. chain in the country. Right. And he's taking the time off to call one of his ex jocks who seems to be in difficulty <laughs> to see if he can help and interject himself into something he, has, he really doesn't need to do. That's just the kind of guy he was. Well, but he also had Paul Drew as his primary programmer in the country, in the, in yes. the oh, yes. company at the time. I'd like to talk to you about your, your music career. 
you just you just made the transition into Columbia Records, and um, that that was not a big surprise for those of us who had known you because you always clearly really loved the music that we played and uh, a lot of the music I guess that we didn't play. But at any rate, when I was I was talking with um, the former Don Christie recently, J.D. Hinton, and uh, yes. he, he he came to work there I guess right after you left. And, and we were talking about the fact that there were some disc jockeys who really were in it for the music. And he was one of those. And I got the feeling that you were too, although you were a magnificent entertainer, very funny guy on the radio, but kind I, of you. Thank you. It didn't, it didn't surprise us that, uh, that you went on to become a big time executive in the record business. Tell us about it. Well, I, I, it's, this is pretty straightforward. <clears throat> Excuse me. I went from Milwaukee to Buffalo uh, to one of the uh, one of your sister stations, WKBW and WYSL, AM and FM. I was assistant program director there for a while. And John Rook, a name that will mean something to only radio people, who was a giant of the industry. He and I had gotten pretty close at, at various conventions and all that sort of thing. He was in L.A. at the time. And he, without my knowing anything about it, had recommended that General Cinema chain, which was pretty big then, mm -hmm. hire me to run their Cleveland state to program their Cleveland station, which was probably 70th in a, a 62 station market. And they had tried all sorts of uh, programming that just wasn't working on any level. But they had a few talented jocks around. But anyway, I, I flew to town, listened to the market, chose to take the job, and one of the reasons I did is that Cleveland was one of the first markets to really get into FM. Detroit was a leader. Cleveland was next, primarily because of the station, the buzzard in, in Cleveland, WMMS. And it also had a Croy-type station, Wixie 1260 mm -hmm. AM, which had huge numbers. And what I did was, after listening to the market, I put... WGCL, which is the station I was in working right, for, FM, right. between the two stations, right in the middle. I wasn't playing the extreme album stuff that the FM rocker was playing, and I tried to stay away from the soft pop stuff, the Carpenters yeah. and Tony Orlando and that sort of thing. So I had a rocker, but it, it captured, I, I thought, a, a piece of the audience that would be more comfortable without the extremes. And I had no budget to deal with, but I did a trade-out and did billboards that just had a guitar and WGCL 98 FM, your kind of rock. And we went from nowhere in the market to actually beating the AM top 40 dominant radio station in the metro area, uh, 18 to 34, male, female, etc. I mean, we did really well. The problem was that we had stations in Houston, Atlanta, Chicago, Detroit, Philadelphia, and all of them were trying some sort of format that wasn't working. And the guy running the station at the time, the chain rather at the time, decided that he wanted all the stations to sound the same. We were sold out. Our, our sales manager was following me around like a little puppy. He loved me to death because <laughs> we were making money like crazy. And the station sounded good. It was tight. It was, it was just really a good state. They wanted to run a pure top 40 station. Well, an FM on pure top 40 at that time in the market was not going to beat a Croy type radio station that had dominance for decades. So 
I didn't want to do it. And at some point I forgot who owned the station and who didn't. And they replaced me. And they brought in legendary Lee Abrams, who turned mm -hmm. it into a top 40 station. The point is, I was going to just go on to the next market, wherever it was, because I love radio. But I was starting to love it a little less because the money people were taking over. Yeah. And deregulation was happening. And yeah. instead of raising program directors and having programming be, it is 75% of the hour, by the way, or more. Yeah. And instead of that being the lead to keep the station in a position to win, all the games are going to go with 10 commercials in a row and all that stuff. So Columbia happened to call me because I did have a good reputation with, with uh, the music labels for being supportive of not, I, I didn't take payola. I didn't do broads. I didn't do Coke. Uh, my job was to pick the right music for my station, which means my market. So irrespective of what was going on nationally, we would follow national trends, but we would do stuff that we knew was important to our market. And Columbia called, they made me a nice offer and I, I went and I've, I've never regretted it. I still miss radio. And the first year that I was traveling for Columbia, I'd go to radio stations and occasionally do part of an airship with people just for my own Jones. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately I, I became a record guy and eventually ran a company. And, and so it all, all worked out. Well, listen, yeah, I guess it worked out. I, I know that over the years we've been in touch a little bit and uh, you always had you always had hilarious anecdotes about various artists, people that we whose names we all know. Um, and, the, and, and there was always but there was always a, a, a room behind the door through which you would not take us. Stories, <laughs> 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 yeah, stories that you you always said something to the effect that. Uh, uh, you know, the, the statute of limitations hasn't run out on that or something. I don't know. I don't know. I do remember having lunch with you one time in Sacramento after you got out of there. I think you were there. And it was with uh, with um, uh, John Fogarty. Was that, was oh, that at please. Woodland? Huh? Yeah. 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 Uh, I don't know. That just I, don't, I don't know. I don't recall that. It may have been Johnny Hyde. Oh, no, he was gone. No, 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 no. Was, yeah. I was pretty it sure. Very, it was, may very well have been. But anyway, anyway, uh, I don't, you know, I don't even know how to ask the question because I don't remember, I don't remember any of the lead-ins, but, you know, maybe you can just talk to us and kind of in general about your time in the record industry and the people that you met along the way. Well, as you alluded to earlier, there's too many of them where somebody has to die either a manager or an attorney, uh, or it'll never get past the, the, the people who look at these things. Uh, but there are some that I, I, I certainly don't mind passing along. Uh, a, a couple in particular, uh, I remember I signed John Cougar when he was before he was John Mellencamp, and mm -hmm. that was through a production deal with Rod Stewart, who had been at Mercury. This is, by the way, when I was president of Mercury Records. Right. It was one of the first deals that I made. And he, he was, as you probably know, a handful. It's the nicest way to put it. He's very difficult to deal with. And on the first album, we had some success. I thought we were going to break him. And, and the second album was being done with uh, Steve Backer. And is that Steve Backer? I'm trying to the great guitar player and musician from the Bar Keys and all these. 
And I kept getting calls when I was in my office in, in Chicago at the headquarters that I got to fly out to LA before one of them kills the other. It was, <laughs> it was very, very difficult. And the point to this, the long-term point is eventually they finished the record and the two managers he had, John Cougar had at the time, uh, were in New York and I was invited in. I brought my wife and we probably had too many cocktails, too much wine. And we listened to the record and it was a good record. It wasn't great. And there weren't smash hits that jumped out at you, but it was a record we could work. And at the end of it, John went off to play, which he did frequently with great enthusiasm. And the two managers played me a version of crying, which is a Roy Orbison song. Yeah. And that's from my youth. And man, I can get so emotional about that. That's the most powerful, one of the most powerful recordings I ever heard. And I listened to Don McLean of American Pie fame on this album and he did cry it and it was like, whoa. <laughs> and they offered it to me for very, very little money because Don McLean was such a cold artist. And I brought it back to my office and we were, I had moved Mercury to New York at, at the orders of the corporation. And the two A&R guys that I hired who were really good, I gave it to them and said, listen, here's the album, Acetate. It's ours if we want it, come back and tell me. And they both came back and said, don't do it. And really? Said, this is the number one single. Don't, don't tell me don't do it. And they said, there's nothing on this album that's good, that's, that's quality, that's going to have hits. It may be good, but it, it's not commercial material. And I screamed and yelled and carried on. But then if you hire people to do a job, right. you listen to what they tell you. And these two guys were really good. One a Brit, the other a former publicist who loved music, and we passed. And the, the irony is that Jimmy Einer, brother of the legendary Donnie Einer, had just done a production deal with RCA. And this was a release he picked up. And as the record was shooting up the charts, my guys were getting a little uncomfortable and I was getting nuts. And eventually the week that the record hit number one, Ooh. the two A&R people, that is artist and repertoire people that had passed on this, we're either in Czechoslovakia or, or Saturn <laughs> looking for new artists because they didn't want to be around me because I went, I went out of my mind. We gave away a number one record. End of the day, they were right. Einer and RCA spent a bloody fortune trying to follow up to sell, and they sold singles like crazy on, on crying, but no hits beyond that. So it's, it was a lesson learned mildly the hard way. But again, it comes down to if you hire people that you think are good, you listen to them. Otherwise, don't hire them. Do it all yourself. Well, it's like, you know, you're adding the extension to yourself, to your own abilities and looking for a, a second opinion as you would with a doctor and except that the doctor's working for you. So, yes. Yeah. And I'll tell you, shortly after I got to Mercury, uh, a guy that was doing A&R for the label brought me to Scorpion's. And they had been a, a total failure on RCA and on Capitol for numerous albums. Great live band. They just didn't sell records. And he played me a blues guitar track, which I'm a sucker for, and, and said, you got to sign this band. We can get them for next to nothing for the U.S. and I think, uh, I don't know, Canada, maybe Japan. And I didn't like the band particularly from the past and the fact that they weren't successful. 
but this guy who had these kinds of ears and eventually he went on to form a partnership and they're maybe the biggest management firm in the world now. I listened to him and, and signed the band and they sold millions of records. Wasn't me. It was me listening to a guy who was doing what I paid him to do. Yeah, there you go. And That's he's great. the same guy who brought me Def Leppard. Oh, and really? They, they were signed worldwide except Mercury in the U.S. because of the bad reputation the label had before I had gotten there. And he said, get on a plane, the same A&R guy, fly to the U.K., follow these guys around and remind him, you broke Springsteen and you broke this one. and you I mean, make up the story. But you were there for all this stuff. And I did. We signed him. And, of course, once again, millions of records. Wasn't me. It was my guys. Well, but it, but that that is you in the in the end again. You know, it's like we were talking about Dwight. You uh, you had the you had the brain power to to know who to hire and uh, you know and and then to to believe in them to believe in yourself right. essentially, right? Yeah. Hey, listen, our first big hit when I got there was a rap band. I'm from San Francisco. Yeah, rap is not something that I <laughs> e even in New York that I can easily connect with. I mean, when that was starting to happen and explode, I thought my time was running out. Um, and we signed a band that had a number one rap record, a number one platinum album that I never would have signed. But the head of black music and the head of A&R who loved black music came in the office and said, don't even listen to this, but if you do, sign them anyway. And <laughs> it was Curtis Blow. And he oh. had huge success back then. And again, it's not something I would have done. It, it's it's listening to the people who, I don't want to lecture on this, but that it is listening to the people who you hire to do something, who know what they're doing. Well, I would, I would think too that it, at some point that becomes a great relief, that you don't feel like it's always on your shoulders at all times because you're capable of making a decision that may not be the right one. And here you've got somebody else to help you out. Yeah, it, it is, but it, you always have, especially the president of a label, that's the end right there. Yeah. And, <clears throat> excuse me, if, if you screw it up, the consequences are enormous. So every decision you make, especially for a label that had been struggling and had a terrible reputation, uh, in fact, Bonnie Simmons, who you may know of from her days as program director at uh, – KSAN in San Francisco, the yeah. very powerful yeah. FM progressive rock station. When I took the job and it hit the trades with pictures, Bonnie called me and said, Sherwood, are you nuts? What are you doing there? Didn't you? Graham Parker wrote a record called Mercury Poisoning, your reputation, da 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 da. da. She was just, and it scared the devil, but it's the, it was a presidency of a label. And that's the top of the greasy pole. <laughs> in the business that we were in and to not take a shot with it. I would have regretted it all my life. You moved into uh, executive business with, with Columbia, right? I'm sorry. Say it again. You, you moved into executive positions with Columbia. Yes. What, what happened was I eventually ran the promotion department um, and we were very, very successful. And so that reputation goes all over the place. That's when Mercury called. At first, I thought they were offering me some kind of marketing position. Didn't even want to talk to them because it had labeled oh, I had a it. terrible reputation. And then I tur it turned out to be the presidency. And I was 
on the phone to my attorney about five minutes later saying, let's see what we can do with this. Put, let's put this into time perspective. What, what, what years are we talking about? What artists were hot and, you know, the ones that you were particularly uh, in, involved with uh, helping their career and, and the label? I, I took over Mercury January 179. Up to that point, I had been the VP of promotion for Columbia. I'd worked my way up from the starter position to the, the head of the department. And I stayed there almost three years. And then Polygram went through one of its uh, regular annual death wish things and fired my boss, who was uh, David Broad, the attorney, uh, who had, had taken over running all the U.S. labels. And they, instead of promoting me, which was their right if they wanted to, they brought in the head of the classical operation from Germany to run the pop label, wow. which was ridiculous he knew nothing about pop music he was a great a wonderful man I, I adored the guy but he was just a terrible choice especially for a label that we had just turned around and, and you know righted at the time so well to say nothing of the difference off. of the culture the cultural it, it, difference between germany oh, and the united states it was awesome and at the time polygram owned mercury and it was a combination of uh, uh, a dutch company and a german company and they they were successful everywhere in the world but the U.S. So there was always difficulty in dealing with them on everything. And they wanted to put their stamp in with a classical guy. So I got my attorney to get me out of the deal and wound up going back to CBS as head of marketing, which was everything having to do with the record except uh, sales sales department and, and A&R, the creative part. And... I did that through the sale of CBS records to Sony and Tommy Mottola came in and he and I were not close. He was a manager at the time and I stayed through the transition and then they put me into a position of uh, international, which I loved to death. I was responsible for U.S. signed artists outside the U.S. And so I was traveling all over the place. And in those days, everything was first class. Yeah. And it was, a, it was a good time to be alive. And what? I did that until Mickey Shuloff, who was my, the chairman who I worked for, he left because of the failure of the film company, primarily. And I started reporting to Tokyo, which was a surprise. I expected to go back into either radio or some other music company and wound up staying for another half dozen or nine years doing consulting work, consulting work for them. What, uh, what artists did you become close to during those period? Well, at Columbia, Billy Joel. Uh-huh. Um, and we haven't, I haven't seen him in years because I live way out of New York these days and, and uh, he's not recording. It hasn't been for years, but he hit the, the label about the same time I did. And his manager understood that getting airplay for Billy was key. And that's what I did for a living. So we got close. Um, Pink Floyd, ironically, who didn't get close to anybody or few people uh, because uh, Dave Mason, the, uh, uh, the drummer, I was also a drummer. He had a Ferrari. I had a Ferrari. He had a group of them, <laughs> some really <laughs> high level. And David Gilmore, also the guitarist, who was maybe my favorite guitarist in the world, uh, they 
they connected with me in a way that, that it went past the business. So we had a good relationship. Um, I mean, Eddie Money, I was extremely close to. God bless his, his heart. And But now moving to Mercury, uh, I got close to Cool in the gang because we moved them from being an R&B band when Celebrate hit. And I'd always rather be lucky than good because that happened around the time the Iran hostages were released. Oh, my. So that, that became a, a symbol of that. And the record went to the moon. And they then made uh, several other records that, that did well. And as I say, Mellencamp, we really set him up well. But also an interesting one was Tom Jones. Uh, I never would have thought of this, but my old boss from Columbia, Steve Popovich, had left and formed his own group. He had Meatloaf, which was a huge success. And he signed Tom to do country. And really? he, he brought him to me at Mercury. And I got to my guy and said, you know, this is the weirdest thing of all time. I can't think of anybody less country, but let's, what, what, what he doesn't want a lot of money. Uh, see if we can find some, et cetera. And it worked very well. But at the, at the time, I think, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I may have the timing off all, all together, but at the time uh, country was making a big transition and trying to go, uh, trying to go crossover and doing a lot of schmaltzy stuff with strings and whatnot. What I say is that Tom, well, I don't know about Tom, but at the time, country music in general. Oh, oh, yes, yes, yes. And he, he had that big, booming voice. He had the look, the clothes. I mean, it it was a good time for him. And we we managed to get some good material, which, which it all came down to, because as I'm sure you know, at the end of the day, the music business is a song business. And that's the way I used to treat all my music decisions when I was in radio. And, and, and I was fortunate in that I had listener ears. I don't have A&R ears. Mm-hmm. Yet once, once again, that that's why when I was president of the company, I made sure to listen to my A&R people because it used to take me 10 times to listen to most songs before I would say, Gee, I, I'd like to own that if I was a listener out there. Yeah. I, I want to have that. Yeah. And that's the key to it is because people don't automatically hear a record and say it's great and want it. And you, you need to roll with that. In fact, there used there was a time at Croy, there were four markets that I cared about more than anything beyond our own. It was Seattle, Phoenix, Columbus, and Milwaukee. And for some reason, anything that happened in one of those markets would also happen in ours. And vice versa, things that happened with us would happen with them. So when Bill Gavin had the report, which was the most obviously important report, it was the most important report in the business, um, he would talk to the program directors and music directors of those four five markets because we were just inerringly right because we programmed for our market. People in Sacramento didn't give a rat's patootie what was happening in Detroit or Washington, D.C. Yeah. So, I ran, yeah, I yeah. ran into that. I ran into that problem. You mentioned Paul Drew in the past, but I ran into that problem with him when I was in Memphis. If you recall, I was there in 1975. I went in as, as program director at WHBQ, an RKO station doing Top 40. And at the time, as you know, uh, all the RKO stations, they had a couple of new FMs. They had uh, Fire, the Great Chicago Fire, which may be the greatest set of call letters ever, WFYR in Chicago. And uh, they had Waxy in Fort Lauderdale. 
and uh, W R O R was it in Boston? And Boston, were, yes. Yeah, and there was one, in, and there was one in New York too. But for the most part, radio music radio was still AM at the time, and RKO had I don't know twelve or thirteen stations, and it was the biggest company in the world because this was before uh, deregulation. And anyway, uh, I was I was programming WHBQ in Memphis, Tennessee. All the RKO stations sounded alike. They sounded fabulous, but they all sounded alike. And yes. because of because of my experience with Croy, which did not sound like an RKO station, we didn't sound like KFRC, as huge as they were at the time. We didn't sound like KHJ, which even had, even though they their signal didn't get anywhere near, that was in Los Angeles, their signal didn't get anywhere near Sacramento, but their influence did. That was the way radio was going at the time. Boss radio and the big voice and the big this and that. And, the, and we didn't do that at Croy. And I went to Memphis and tried to do what we did at Croy. And I had, had Paul Drew come down on top of me and say, you know, this is, this is not what we do. You're playing the wrong music. You're doing. And I was trying, trying to program to, you know, my market. And that's, that essentially is what got me out of the business in, in terms of management. I just got tired of having to fire people that I didn't feel like should be fired and uh, taking marching orders out of Los Angeles when it came to trying to program a radio station in Tennessee. Yeah, and and Mr. Drew, the late Mr. Drew, wanted to control everything. Yeah. I mean, it absolutely was, as far as programming is concerned, it was in his hands and he would do it and you either played the way he wants you to play or he'd find some a new player. Yeah. And, so you were an outlier in that point. I completely understand your position. I will tell you, just a, a Drew, <laughs> a Drew went nuts. This is back in the mid-70s. And if you recall the song Tonight's the Night by Rod Stewart, which oh, was yeah. sure. a gigantic record, Dwight Case heard it as he was driving home, I guess, on KHJ. And went goofy because there was a phrase in there, and I'm I'm paraphrasing, getting the basic point right. The line in there was "Spread your wings and let me come inside you." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. and that 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 could be looked at as a line of poetry, beautifully yeah. written, fits a song. Dwight heard it, didn't take it at that point, and <laughs> banned the record from the RKO stations. And Drew knew it was a number one record and went nuts. It was one of the biggest battles they ever had. And eventually Dwight won because Warner, knowing the Warner Brothers records, which is where Rod Stewart recorded at that time, knew the importance of KHJ and all the RKO stations. And they re-recorded it and smoothed it out. So it was still on the album that way. And I'll just (laughs) anecdotally, I was having lunch with Dwight during this period at one of your favorite restaurants, Orso. Oh, yeah. and, and I told him at the time, I just busted his chops because I, I couldn't resist. He said, if I was at another L.A. rock station and you did that and you took it off, I'd be playing that sucker every 20 minutes and telling <laughs> this is the way Rod Stewart recorded it. This is the way it should be heard. Right. You're listening to your, I mean, I, right. I, he wasn't comfortable with that, <laughs> but he did win because Warner put out a new version. Well, you know, put that into into context of the times. This was around about the time that uh, that Kodachrome from Paul Simon came out, and they had to re-record it because he used the word crap. When I when I look back on all the crap I learned in high school, 
Yes. And and they had just they just did a really bad edit and took out the word crap, right? I mean that that's how offensive people were taking things. Now you you were asking for some anecdotes about artists, and I'll tell you one about Paul. Uh, I was always a fan of his writing and his his music when I was in, on the radio. I wasn't that big a fan when I joined Columbia because certain execs above my level fell all over him as if he were the end all be all, et cetera. And mm. I'm sure they, they loved him, loved his music. So he didn't pay much attention to me. And at one point, Kodachrome was his, his biggest solo hit. And then he really cooled off and we would get play on album oriented rock stations with his album tracks but he wasn't getting any hits and the sales were way off and phil ramone the producer who had become a friend of mine probably because i was so 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 strong in billy joel's career and he was producing billy uh, he used to call me on occasion and do something that was really not cool in that he'd have me come to his uh his studio when he had something one of our recordings and listen just to hear what I thought commercially. Forget quality, forget artist career. Is there a hit here? And he called me one day and he said, he's just finishing a Simon album. He wanted me to come in. And I used to hate to do that because the word got out that I was hearing this stuff before Walter Yetnikoff, Al Teller, or the other big executives in the industry. That wouldn't be good. Yeah. But Phil was such a great producer and he kept it cool. Problem was, I showed up that same evening, and I was the number two guy in promotion at the time. Uh, Paul Simon walked in the door about 10 minutes after me. And we didn't have a great relationship. We didn't have a bad relationship, but I wasn't one of the people who followed him around bowing right. and, and begging for his, his love. So we, we heard the first track, which is still crazy after all these years. And I thought, what a fabulous song, but it's not a hit. Mm -hmm. I didn't say that to him. I was soft in my explanation to it. And we heard some more tracks. I, I wasn't hearing a hit. And then Phil put on 50 ways to leave your lover. <laughs> and I lost my mind. I mean, that's one of those records, the few in my career that I heard the first time ago. It's a smash. It's a <laughs> and Paul went crazy. He, I thought you'd say that you top 40 guys. That's all you care about. You don't care about quality music. Really? Paul, Paul, Paul. And I tried to explain to him that he, a hit record would be good for him at this point. And let's put it out. And when it's a hit, we can add still crazy after all these years or anything else we want. Once we have a hit American tune, for example, he, he went so nuts that John Eastman, the attorney who was Paul McCartney's brother-in-law was Paul's attorney called Walter Yannikov chairman of the company the next day and demanded I be fired. Wow. Oh, Paul was out of his mind over this thing. And I'll give Walter Yetnikoff, the late Yetnikoff, a lot of credit. He called to ask what happened. I explained to him, I apologize for going to the studio to hear it. And I said, but, and he said, don't worry about it. It's done. It's handled. And but he didn't like Paul anyway. And he had, he had signed every artist that we had on the label to a long-term deal, except Paul. And Paul eventually left to Warner Brothers wow. and all the rest is history. Wow. He hasn't forgiven me, he, Paul, Simon, <laughs> in, I don't know, 50 years, 55 years. One of them, I, I think, is I've always found particularly interesting, has to do with Pink Floyd. And 
we had them in the U.S. only, maybe Canada and Mexico, but basically they were still EMI capital worldwide, except for us. And on this, the contract that we had, they had to perform live uh, to support the music because obviously the live performance of Pink Floyd was what drove it and made the monsters. And for the second album, which we had, which was called Animals, and you may or may not be aware of it, uh, the album cover, like all of the Pink Floyd album covers, was done by Hypnosis, which is really creative and out of the center uh, company. And in this case, they use the Battersea uh, power station in London on the Thames, which is a big, ugly industrial building. And it has four, to this day, huge uh, exhaust pipes heading to the sky from each of the four corners. Mm-hmm. And Hypnosis wanted to use that as a basis. Pink Floyd agreed. So on the first day of shooting, Pink Floyd being Pink Floyd, Hypnosis being Hypnosis, uh, EMI was forced to hire a gunman with a rifle be in the event that somehow the giant pig that was floating above the Battersea power station <laughs> somehow cut free of all four of its connections to these huge pipes. Okay. So it we're talking about a big the, balloon, a big pig balloon, a, a, an inflatable pig. Yeah. Okay. Which, which eventually became a huge part of, of their shows, which, which are just which were monumental. So any event, EMI told the rifle holder and shooter not to come back the second day because nothing weird happened the first day. And of course, on the second day, mysteriously, somehow the pig broke loose. And the end of the story is, and it's legendary in the UK, a British Overseas Airways pilot, either in a, a Concorde or 747, calling Heathrow to say, do you want me to go port or starboard to avoid hitting the giant floating pig that's at 29,000 feet? <laughs> and I will tell you, in addition to that, that this is personal. When Pink Floyd started their American tour in support of, of the Animals record, uh, they were going to do LSU uh, in Baton Rouge. Yeah. And so we got one of the CBS jets and piled in a number of execs and flew down there because they were a very difficult band to, to deal with in, in the best of times. And they didn't like their companies. I mean, there's a famous story about one of the tracks on the first album we got from them, which was called Which One's Pink? And it referred to record execs who came in and thought somebody was named Pink Floyd. <laughs> so any event, we show up and as was usually the case, I tended to want to be with the group, the heavy hitters in the exec section and want to go in the stands where the fans were, because that's when you get a feel for the people, especially sure. outside New York and L.A. Yeah. And what they feel about a band. And I was sitting in the upper deck of the LSU auditorium, and it is absolute pitch black in the stadium. The only light comes from these pods that contain an individual that's over each of the members of the band as they're performing. And the light comes right down on them and that's it. And during the second half after the break, when they're doing the song called Pigs, which is a classic hard driving David Gilmore guitar piece, 
um, the the house is just animated by the this dark content and these lights on the end, nothing else. And suddenly in the far left corner, a couple of lights begin to illuminate. And it turns out their eyes from what it becomes the pig and it's being inflated. So the lights are getting lighter and they're moving apart as the helium is coming into this pig. And I have to make you imagine being a Pink Floyd fan at least 90% of the people were on medication of some sort or another. <laughs> and they're sitting up on these darkened stands. And here comes this pig, the bright eyes only, and the size of a house heading <laughs> on a cable straight for that section. And I have to tell you, they were scraping people off the bottom of the seats or trying to find them from falling downstairs when the pig finally got over. It was amazing. And I was completely freaked out because I knew nothing about it. <laughs> you never told us anything about it. So in any event, that's part of what we dealt with with Floyd. And, and their shows, believe me, were beyond comprehension. The performances <laughs> of the bits and pieces that they used to add to it on top of the music was, was, was something. What, you, you, you mentioned that they were difficult. They were difficult to deal with. What, what was the problem? They have an attitude toward those of you that they had to work with but would rather not we we didn't we didn't we weren't able to make a real connection with them as we were with most other artists i mean springsteen could be difficult in his view he made the music and we sold it right and it's only because he was so strongly influenced by walter yenikoff the head of the company who believed in him that he, he was there's some people in the company he connected with and the rest of us we were just like distribution for him mm -hmm. <clears throat> as opposed to a billy joel or in george michael who connected with the family because they loved his music and so they the support was 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 totally 100 percent given floyd their view was that we were just purely the distribution for their music didn't understand it probably didn't like it it didn't want to deal with it. I had a connection with him only because, I, and this sounds arrogant, but I drove a Ferrari at the time. Not one of the big kids Ferrari, but a Ferrari, which mm -hmm. I got when I became president at Mercury before I came back to uh, Columbia. And one of the biggest Ferrari owners in the world was Nick Mason, the drummer for Pink Floyd, and also uh, um, uh, David Gilmore, the guitarist, and the then manager, he actually raced at Le Mans. So I had that kind of a connection. But beyond that, I really didn't have. But they invited me to tour Europe with them because of this Ferrari connection. Um, and, but they were generally very difficult because they just didn't want to deal with the record company. They found one or two or three people who really were into their music to the extent of beyond anybody else's music. And that they connected with them and the rest of us know. So it was never a friendly, and of course, when the wall happened, that broke down a lot of barriers because it was so big and it was a worldwide audience and they connected better with the company when that occurred. You think that that's common among people who are creative, you know, who are, you know, have a, a degree of success in, in living in their own little world in their heads and is that just something that you come to expect of being in the business? I, it's, it's, 
it's not as, and I don't mean to be uh, pejorative, it's not as simple as that in that uh, many of the artists managed to adapt to the fact they needed a company to support them to have their music heard, presented, and eventually sold and have their careers grow. So there was a symbiotic relationship that worked in most cases. It's just that you had to deal with, if you were smart, you had to deal with each artist in their individual way. I mean, Eddie Money was all over the place. He loved all of us. We loved him. He loved to play. We loved to play. And it really worked out well. Behind him was Bill Graham, who was the ultimate entrepreneur and businessman. And he came in and broke our chops all over the place, whether it was Santana or, or Eddie or one of the other artists that he had, which was the role that somebody should have had. You know, the businessman, the lawyer, the accountant, let the artists make their music. And there was one part of our company that was a creative part, that's A&R, artist and development. Right. And they were the ones who would either find songs or find producers who would do the creative stuff. And then we were the ones who got the music at some point and then had to make the video and do these monstrous sales campaigns and do everything else to find success for the artist. So it was a very workable relationship that no longer exists, by the way, in part because radio, with all due respect to you who are in radio, long since lost its connection with the music industry. It used to be that we worked closely together. When you and I were at Croy, a couple of my closest relationships were promotion guys, right. in part because they understood our position in the market. In Croy, we were so dominant the other top 40 stations barely existed. I mean, we just blew them off. Mm -hmm. And it was because we were so locally oriented and we were really connected and we played music that they wanted to hear. We made sure we played the right stuff. Our egos didn't get involved. And in fact, the two closest competitors for us were a country station, 50,000 watts, KRAK, who I think you worked for at one point, and uh, the, the adult contemporary station. They were number three. And Dwight Case, our beloved general manager, when I was a music director and when I became a program director, used to bust my chops at expanding the demographics, expanding the audience so we had more of an advertising base to deal with. And both Jack Campbell at Columbia and the late Bud O'Shea at, at, at Capitol and then Epic understood that I was always looking for something that was non-traditional rock that I could slip in there and kind of gather a larger part of that either elder or non-rock demographic, which is what helped our numbers grow so dramatically. And, and the other guys, many of them at record companies, they were just up Sacramento because they couldn't get anything done in, in uh, San Francisco or LA and they were looking for somebody to help them with a record where they were getting pounded to bits on it. Well, that was not the kind of relationship that I wanted or needed to deal with. So I had to in my job, especially as music director, but the guys who came in who understood, I was always looking for a, a little country thing that might work mass market or an adult thing that might work mass market and expand our audience. Sorry for the long winded diatribe, but that's, 
And that, again, that doesn't exist because radio has long since been taken over by the finance people. Sure. Uh, the big market people. And there's not a relationship, especially locally. And what they're doing when they're running all their stations out of San Antonio, um, the, the, the people who live in Spokane have nothing to do with the people who live in Detroit. Right. And, and they don't deal with that. They don't deal locally and they don't deal with things that are unique to certain markets. So, you know, you, no, that's okay. You're, you're talking about something I kind I kind of innately know from my own experience when I was working with RKO and when I was at uh, WHBQ in particular, and as I think I already talked to you about, um, it was impossible for me to do anything local in terms of the music, because um, you know there was a lot of there was a lot of uh, southern rock, southern country rock, and stuff, and I couldn't, uh, you know, I couldn't get it past Paul Drew, the um, uh, vice president in charge of programming. Couldn't get it past Martin Airbus, the vice president in charge of music programming, because they were programming the entire country, and every station in the country sounded exactly the same, regardless of where it was, and. Exactly right. There was no interest in breaking records unless it was already by already huge established artists. So that I, I consider probably was the problem for the uh, promoters you're talking about who came into Sacramento, couldn't get anything done in L.A. Or, or San Francisco, especially because you had that kind of station that was locked into nothing but hits that are established elsewhere. Yes. Yes. And you were, you were the I'll elsewhere. I'll tell you an, an irony. <clears throat> excuse me, the fellow that you mentioned, Paul Drew, which we, we both know well, and with whom I had one of the great battles of all time that we'll deal with it some other day. I mean, it was horrible. When he was at KFRC in San Francisco, which was obviously a dominant station, that was during the time that FM radio moved from classical and foreign to progressive rock. And KFRC and the other big rocker, KYA, were trying to figure out how to deal with it because you had all these artists who came out of nowhere in San Francisco who became very popular. Yeah. And they did it through FM radio. And Drew used to call me, him calling me, by the way, the, the king calling a slave in the outer provinces right. on, if not a weekly basis, at least a couple of times a month to see what was going on, in part because we had Tower Records, which yeah. dominated sales. So I had a good basis of when I was right and when I was wrong on things, or when Johnny Hyde, the program director, and I were right and wrong. But Drew would call me, and Johnny Holiday at KYA, who was a brilliant guy, we'd speak regularly because what happened with me in Sacramento, 90 miles north, would probably eventually get down to San Francisco at some point, and they needed that information. And all of that kind of communication long since disappeared. Uh, and it, uh, surprising, it was Drew who became his national PD for the very powerful RKO chain, the most powerful chain, uh, who was the guy who didn't want any records that, that were more than three minutes long. And he wanted all the stations to sound alike. Right. And the people in Boston and San Francisco are kind of alike, but New York and Miami aren't. Right. And Chicago, Miami aren't. And I mean, he was powerful enough to be able to get his way and everybody followed Paul through. So, and then we've, we've come over a, several different areas here of the businesses, but 
and, and but we all existed when Paulder was around because we we in the case of Columbia and Warner's in particular had really good local people who understood the market that they were in and managed to take the priorities that the company had and go promote them, jump on the desk, scream and yell, carry on. But at the end of the day, would come up with things that might help the music director, program director. Mm -hmm. So there was a relationship between the record industry and the broadcast industry that worked, but that's long since gone. Yeah, well, yeah, not only is it long since gone, but it leads me to my next question is that how the hell do musicians and recording companies make music and and get it sold and distributed and heard today as a matter of fact are there even still recording companies i don't know how does yes, it yes there are uh but 20 years ago when i was still in the business before i went to international uh it it all the relationships all disappeared because tower records got crushed by the government and because they got accused of, of uh, using all the companies to ma manipulate to help them against the uh, targets and the best buys and the big chains who use music as a lost leader. And Tower and Record Bar and Camelot and the other really aggressive chains, Musicland, they, they sold nothing but music and videos. So when, when, when Tower eventually left there was nobody to work with. And in the meantime, the music, the record companies didn't want to deal with anybody except top management. So they could cut deals and they would, this is pure payola. They'd play a record for a certain artist if the artist would come and do a promotion for them. And that happened in your market, Dallas and LA and a lot of other places. It's payola, but it's been allowed to go on. And in the old days, it was more relationship issue. If we if we play a record early, and the artist starts to happen, the artist is going to come into that market. And they're going to play that market where they have airplay and they have there's some sort of knowledge and recognition, and that's how they broke and developed. And I'll give you a, a, an example, which is part of what you wanted to talk about with regard to some of the vignettes of the business. When I was doing when I was a music director at Croy and I was doing middays. Uh, I was also one of the people who Tower Records uh, paid a, a tiny sum to announce major artists that were playing in the venues, Sacramento Auditorium. Mm -hmm. And there was a case in particular when uh, Sly was coming in and Sly had be Sly and the Family Stone had become this gigantic artist. This is before he really found cocaine. And they were open, they had an opening act called Santana. And I called Bill Graham, the entrepreneur, and just to ask him a little bit about Santana, because I, I, it's a Mexican guitar player. What, what's happening? How can I set this thing up and try and sell the show? And Graham, in his forthright way, said, Sherwood, you go on the radio and play the records. I do the shows. Slam the phone down. Well, I found out. <laughs> I found out ultimately that Carlos Santana, at 17 years of age, climbed up the outside wall of Graham's office south of Market Street in San Francisco and broke into a window because Eric Clapton was playing at the Cow Palace, the big arena south of the city. And he wanted to meet him. And Graham was going to throttle him and then throw him out the window and then realize the kid played guitar. 
and found out he played really good, good guitar, and he signed him. And to come to the, the point I've started with, Santana, this band, is going to open up to Sly. I introduce him best I can. They kill the crowd between between Carlos Santana's guitar playing and the rhythm of the band. The crowd went goofy. And then Sly didn't show up for the show. Oh, no. What happened? I got Santana to come back out and do an encore. The encore was the same five songs they played originally because that's all the songs they knew at that point. <laughs> And they still killed the crowd. And I had brought up a guy named Herb Campbell, who you may know of, who had been the program director at KSOL, the black, the R&B station in Oakland, where Sly was once a disc jockey, a brilliant disc jockey, just because I thought the crowd, which is primarily black, was going to relate to him. And when I told them Sly's not here yet, they'd be okay. Um, they were only mildly okay. And eventually, Sly, they found him. Brought him out, but he was he was higher than a kite. He did a terrible show. Mm. By that time, I'd gotten the car and headed home, and avoided what could have been a riot, because later on there was a riot in Detroit where somebody was killed when Sly didn't show up for a show. Wow. Uh, he was that irresponsible, and his management was afraid of him because he was so big, they didn't want him to go someplace else. But he was he was a package. He was, and I'll tell you something. He was, in my view, he would have left an impact as great as possibly the Beatles and the general community, but he was so strong in the black community and with rhythm and all that sort of thing. And he, he, he screwed it all up by putting a spoon up his nose. Wow. And he's, he, some, he's someplace today, probably living in an old Oldsmobile, someplace in L.A. Uh, can't get a deal, can't get recorded. And it's a tragedy because he was this brilliant talent. Now, your overall question was, there is a, a huge basis for artists today, but it's social media. Because there's no retail to speak of. Yeah. I mean, I, I couldn't exist in the business as it is these days because my specialty was radio, which I came from, understanding it, and, and also music retail. And they're both gone. Right. So well, so how, how do art... How do artists make make any music? They make any money these days? Streaming. It, it, streaming is is the business these days. Although there's a bit of a comeback with vinyl LPs. Yeah. And a bit of retail, but it's 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 minor. It's what really goes out in the streaming services. And there are people who now can get artists played via streaming, and that's what spreads the demo and eventually they get big enough and somebody's going to sign them, hire them and, and put their music out. And at the end of the day, the, the big music companies are still big and they still have distribution and they still have the ability to make things happen. It's just, we in the music business of the 60s, 70s, 80s used to do it on our own. And now, now we don't, or they don't do it in their own. And I'll give you a quick example of something. There's an artist who is representative of John Mayer. Tall, slim, well-dressed, good-looking, good voice, writes good songs. And I found him, this other artist, three years ago. And I sent his music to a couple of A&R guys that I knew from the good days of the business. 
And both of them called back and said, in, in, in essence, the same thing. Love your guy, not going to sign him. And I said, well, why? And I said, because he's really good. And he's, 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 he has a chance to be a star, but he's not what everybody's looking for. The industry only wants Jay-Z. They want somebody who does 10 million albums at a time. Mm-hmm. And that is successful almost immediately. And he said, this guy is someone who 20, 25 years ago, you as head of marketing would have given to your staff and they would have taken him or her or them out on the road after they recorded some music. They found artists, they found producers, they found music by their producers. And they would build a bit of a relationship. So when the record was done, there was some place to go with it where there was some sense that the artist had, there was some recognition and some sense that the artist was of value. And he said, so while we were all dealing with Springsteen and Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones, it was these artists at a local level that we got established with a little bit of airplay, forced some records into stores so they could be seen and picked up by somebody who wanted them. That's the way the system worked. Well, that, that just doesn't happen anymore. And it's sad because this artist is still around trying to make a living and could be a big artist, but uh-huh. isn't. I suppose that's probably the way, uh, you know, life in general works out. There are fabulous athletes who don't get a shot for one weird reason or another and actors and everybody else. Hey, I got a story for you and I want to ask you a question about it because I've never, I've never heard, I'm sure anecdotally, I'm sure there are a lot of, a lot of cases of this happening. I've just never heard any, and maybe it's happened to you. But when I, after I left Croy, I went to, uh, to Los Angeles. I was working at K earth for Dwight came back to Sacramento and uh, went to work at candy K N D E Croy's competitor. And, and one day I was in my office and the receptionist came in and said, there's a, there's a, there's a woman and a man out here. would like to talk to you about the music. And I said, okay. Bring him in, uh, and it it was Tony Tennille and Daryl Dragon, yes. and they yeah. nobody had ever heard of them before. She said, "We're just out traveling around through California and taking bringing our record in, and want you to give it a listen if you got a couple of minutes. Love will keep us together." Was the call it? How does <laughs> you know? And I'm the biggest, as I've told you before. I had people talk about. Uh, radio people that had tin ears. I had no ears at all. I was like the biggest dummy, but I listened to that and I said, uh, hang on a second. I walked into the studio and told the disc jockey, I said, put this on next. And I came back into my office and turned up the speaker and she heard it and was just, was just all excited and ecstatic. But did that, did that ever happen that, that you uh, wound up, you know, with somebody coming in off the road like that on their own, they didn't have, any support from the record company or anything else? No, it, it, it did not. In part because we didn't encourage it in the sense that Sacramento was, a, like San Francisco, a hot music area and everybody was recording something and you could have spent all day listening to this. So I generally, and, and by the way, I had listener ears and they I think focus back on what you said about your ears. Um, they're not tin ears. They're non-commercial ears. Mm-hmm. Uh, I rarely heard a record when I was in radio or was on the business that I heard the first time and went, 
Whoa, that's great. I want to put that on. The, I mean, there are some, very, very few. But generally speaking, I'm like our Croy listener and had to hear something a half a dozen or 10 times to think, gee, I'd like to hear that again, or I'd like to actually own that. I think I'll go buy that. And that's that's the other side of the market. And it gets confused regularly with the creative side um, when everybody who makes a record thinks it's the greatest record ever made and everybody's going to love it immediately. Well, it doesn't work that way. So yet I had to fit into a business where they wanted you they expected you to be able to say, that's a hat, that's a smash. That, and it didn't work that way for me. Rare again was you, and I'll just tell you a couple of occasions where when I heard, if if you leave me now by Chicago, yeah. by Pizza Terra, and I had one of those rare examples where the managers who I'd worked with for a long time knew I was in LA from New York, insisted I come to the studio to listen, didn't tell me they were bringing the band in. Because the worst thing in the world for someone like me is to listen to something for the first time with a band present when they all want to go, it's a number one record, you know? Sure. On that that one, I I screwed myself up pretty bad because I did everything but say it was a number one record because I believed it. And, of course, it did become a number one record, so that was safe. And I'll tell you anecdotally, a couple of guys you may know from your past, I think John Long, who was at eventually at HBQ after you left. Yeah. But also Jerry Cagle, who was Jerry Peterson, who was a giant terror for everybody. I happened to get along well with Jerry because he knew I came for the business. He knew I didn't do drugs, so he didn't expect me to give him any drugs. And so we had we had a really good relationship because we'd go play together. Mm-hmm. And I'd be able to work my magic as best I could in the circumstances. But I can never forget in the case of both of those guys because – my fiance was leaving me when if you leave me now was <laughs> John's wife and Kegel's wife and girlfriend were both leaving him at the time it was out. And at each of the Chicago concerts I took them to, we were because it, it was such a powerful song. There were a couple of other cases where I got lucky. Um, and in the case of, of, of Toto, uh, they were this brilliant studio band from L.A., Columbia signed him, called me and Ray Anderson, a name you may remember, who was a complete wild card, lunatic, uncontrollable promotion guy who I was forced to hire at Columbia for a while. And he was brilliant, but he was a handful to deal with. We were in L.A. together, and the managers of Toto called and said, you got to come into the studio to hear we just... Kodo, it's brilliant. I love these guys. I respected these guys. So I came in and once again, surprise, surprise, the band showed up. Oh. Now we're going to listen to stuff with the band. And the first thing they played was Rosanna. Oh. And both, both Ray and I were going, we couldn't control ourselves because <laughs> we both knew a hit record from a hit record. I, I would have played that. I would have put that in Croy the day it came out. But then about six songs later came Africa. Oh. <laughs> Another number one record. And again, it's, the band was there. We couldn't 
we could not contain ourselves. And by the way, we were never supposed to do this stuff because normally the president of the company, the president of the label, listened to any new major artist work before other execs did. Really? And yeah, oh yeah, this that was a real huge criteria that you don't want to get around. But with these managers who we counted on for so much, when they say, "Hey, you're in L.A. We got this," and we won't tell anybody, no problem. And, and, and you kind of did it to keep the relationship. And I'll tell you one other, and you asked for the good and the bad of some relationships. Um, when I was the number two guy in, in promotion at Columbia, basically dealing with Top 40 Radio more than anything else from whence I came. And Phil Ramone, who is the greatest producer I've ever been involved with. I mean, he did Billy Joel, Sinatra, Ray Charles, Strice. I, he just did all the great Elton John. He called me one day and said, I'm, I'm finishing an album and I want you to listen to it. Cause he had, I had connected with him when Billy Joel arrived at Columbia, almost the same time I did. And we became close and I was really responsible for a lot of his airplay. I love the guy, <laughs> but the whole company did, but I was really well connected with him and Phil Ramone produced him. So I would sneak in on occasion before even the chairman of the company and the president got to hear anything because Phil knew I knew radio and he wanted to get a feel on some things. So I come in at night to his studio in New York and without telling me, Paul Simon shows up because it's his album that was being finished. Oh. And it was still crazy after all these years which is a brilliant song. Yeah. And I can't not listen. Paul's there. I didn't get along all that well with him because I didn't idolize him like other people with the company did who went back with Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, he's a, he can be a very difficult guy to, to deal with. Well, you there actually, he is. We, we, you talked about him a little bit uh, the first time we, uh, you, you said earlier that, uh, uh, I don't. Know, I guess, I guess he, you know, the impression I got was that he really kind of had a chip on his shoulder and was condescending to you and your ilk. That is, uh, you know, commercial radio people. Fair to say, because um, I, I had been in radio until just before Kodachrome came out, when Steve Popovich hired me, and we delivered on Kodachrome to the degree that it became a number two or three record. But he cooled off a lot. And again, there were people at the company who idolized him and were fearful of him. Uh, I wasn't one of them. I didn't go back to those days. I, I loved him when he was part of Simon and Garfunkel and stuff we used to play on Croy. But he was not a pleasant guy to deal with. And so I, I, I didn't like being stuck in this position when I really should have been there in the first place and have to listen. And they played Still Crazy After All These Years. And, and I liked that. That was a terrific song. But it was not the kind of thing that was going to happen for him. He was cold. And I listened to several more tracks. And then 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover came on. <laughs> I lost control. I went out of my mind. It was such a great song. I knew we could get major airplay. And Paul went nuts. I thought you'd like that, you top 40 guy. You don't care about great music. You just care about hits. Paul, you need a hit. I didn't <laughs> say it that directly. But the point, point was, if we get a hit record, get you on the radio, on mass market radio, we can come back with a great song, like Still Crazy After All These Years, get huge play on it, sell a ton of album, you're back. 
he wouldn't hear about it. And he screamed and yelled and carried on. It was nasty. And the next morning, John Eastman, and you've no doubt seen him in the news these days, having to do with Trump. Yeah. He was Linda McCartney's brother and he, Paul McCartney's attorney and Paul Simon's attorney. And he was on the phone, not to my boss, the head of Columbia, but to Walter Yetnikoff, the head of CBS, demanding I be fired for my outrageous behavior. I mean, he really went after me. <clears throat> and so Yetnikoff called me and I had to cop out to the fact that I was there in the first place, which I shouldn't have been, but explained it and how I tried to handle it. And he covered me, thank God, in part because Paul was such a jerk. And eventually he became the only artist who left Columbia when we went to total war with Warner Brothers after stealing James Taylor. There had never been a war like that before in the industry between the two giants. And so Paul left and that was okay. But he was a bit of a jerky. So that was one of the more uncomfortable times. It could have ended my career. Much like Paul Drew could have ended my career at one point. Um, but Dwight Case came in to try and help. It wasn't necessary. And Paul and I worked things out. But there was a lot of, when you're at that level of the Paul Drews and the head of promotion for Columbia or the president of Mercury, I mean, the, the amount of money involved in having hit records and building careers is so extraordinary. Uh, there's a lot of tension and pressure every day. Sure. Makes perfect sense. So you mentioned, you mentioned Billy Joel in particular. Um, you know, or who else comes to mind as just being great people in the music industry, names that we would know? George Michael of Wham? Yeah. And it, I mean, I'll <laughs> just tell you, we heard that Faith album when he went, went solo and lost our minds. I mean, it was just so good, and he was so good, but he was a really good guy. And he was smart enough to leave the torture of the business off to his management people. Unfortunately, his second management people were not good. And then he was going through all this personal crises about his, his sexual activities and getting old and gaining weight and all that stuff. And that's when Don Einer came in and, and Einer was not one to handle that very well. And eventually George killed himself and it was a terrific loss. But the time he was with the company, I had a great relationship with him. Uh, he was He's a terrific guy. He was a terrific guy. Mm -hmm. And there were a bunch of others. I mean, Eddie Money was a fabulous guy, but he managed to get in trouble on so many levels, it's hard to, to recount them because he just was a young guy who suddenly was making a lot of money. And I mean, Billy Joel told me once, and we were very close, even when he was going through his uh, a brief period of his cocaine problems. And I, I kind of questioned him about it. And he said, Sherwood, when you're out every night and sitting and you're on a stage in front of 25,000 people, many of whom are throwing their clothing and possessions at you, <laughs> who, who, who love you so much, it's difficult to keep perspective. And he said, you find something like cocaine, which is really expensive. Most people can't afford it. It makes you feel good. You go for it. In his case, he managed to walk away from it. But there was a period where it was a, a real career factor for him. And Stephen Stills, we had him for a little while. There's, there aren't that many more people, talented people in the business. We got nothing but direct from him. 
because at the time he was on a $25,000 a week cocaine habit, had his posse all hanging around behind him, and he made terrible music. We couldn't do anything with it. $25,000 a week. And, and that's back in the, that's back in the seventies. Yeah. So God yeah. knows what it is today. I mean, but you know, the dealers certainly came to people who had money and Stephen Stills is one of those people. I mean, it's not just him. Um, there's a story about Joe Cocker. He was, when he recorded uh, the hits that he had in the early seventies, there was a time he used to use and he was on A&M, which was really a quality label then. And they would use the best studio musicians in L.A. And the problem was they'd come in to do work, and Joe might be two, three, four hours late, and he'd be drunk. He'd be higher than a kite. And the whole session would be wasted. All that money for all those people in the studio and the time, total waste. You know, I've, t- I've spoken with musicians who, uh, you know, trying to trying to get better, trying to be as good as they possibly could and and never stopping in that pursuit. It's, it's like their entire life and they work so hard at it. How do you get to that level and totally blow it all off by coming to a session stoned and drunk? Um irresponsible uh, I mean it's the the booze or the blow is more important at that time uh, and listen throughout the entire career um, Mick Jagger has been as excessive in women and drugs and everything as anybody can be until he's going to go out on the road and then he cleans his act up I mean, so he's still, I mean, he's 70 and he's still bouncing around the stage like a 20-year-old. On the other hand, his guitarist has had all of his bodily fluids replaced in Switzerland at least twice (laughs) and doesn't give a rat's ass. I mean, he just, he's on uh, Jack Daniels and cocaine or and cognac in the morning whenever they're going to go anyplace. And he's still doing it at night backstage before the show. But somehow he manages to go out on stage and play that guitar like very few people can. You talking about Keith Richards? Yes. I was just, I, I read his book just very recently, uh, his autobiography. It's called uh, Life, I think, or something like that, something as simple as that. And in that, and it was written like 20 years ago. And he claims to have been cleaned up and sober as a, you know, as a preacher for the last umpteen years. Tells all the wonderful, wonderful stories. And he's really a fabulous writer. I'm sure he had help with it, but still, it's in his voice, you know. And I was really impressed at how he was able to do, as you just were expressing with Mick Jagger, uh, you know, when it was come time to uh, to uh, pack up the suitcases again, uh, he and he and Mick both, you know, cleaned up. He talked about, he talked about the times he had to go through uh, cold turkey, or, you know, a week before starting a tour and that kind of thing. And he would do that so that uh, so that the tour went as well as possible. But now I'm hearing a little bit different story from you about Keith Richards as opposed to the one about Jagger. Well, I, I can tell you, we had the, the, the Stones for a while and should have had them much longer. Uh, but they were uh, 
even though we, we made more money for them than any record company ever had, they wanted more and they wanted a stupid deal. And a new label starting up that looked wanted a superstar paid them money that they would never get back in, in decades. But my point is, when we had the Stones, I remember seeing them in Tokyo. And Jagger was Jagger. He was business. And he went out in the show and was Jagger and he was fabulous. And I saw Keith uh, for a couple of minutes and I knew him over the years, not well, but enough to, he knew I was a semi-important guy. And I came back, I happened to come back through the, the backstage before the show started. He was playing pool with somebody uh, and he had to be introduced to me again. And I had just seen him a half hour before. <laughs> it's just one, one of those cases where he found the booze or the blow or the whatever. And, and yet he still, even for that show, he came out and through muscle memory, played the guitar like, whoa, that's yeah. Keith Richards. I mean, some, some people can do that. Mick was smart enough to know he had to clean up his act if he was going to go out and perform live. Uh, and so he did. And he, he was great. You know, talking about guitar players, I talked with uh, uh, Kenny Lee Lewis just last week. We talked for an hour, did a podcast about uh, his work with the, uh, with the Steve Miller Band for the last 40 years. And we were talking about the ability to play like he does and like, you know, all that you think, think of the top, the top lead guitarists. And he said very simply, he said, it's, it's a gift. He said, you can teach almost anybody to play the guitar, but you know, very few people are going to be really good at it. And very few above beyond that will become, you know, special in that way. He said, it's a gift, but in the industry, we call it the curse because of everything that goes along with it. I guess I just kind of, they get, uh, you know, they're, they're chained to their life. Yes. I'll, I'll give you another just quick anecdote about, I, I asked you uh, to listen to Loan Me a Dime. Yes, I did. Classic by Bob Skaggs, which yeah. he recorded on the only album he did for Atlantic, which was produced by Jan Winter, but also Barry Beckett of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. And in it is these three guitar runs by Dwayne Allman. And, and I was never a big Allman Brothers fan, but these three guitar different runs by Dwayne in the 12-minute Loan Me a Dime are the best playing for me I've ever heard. And the point to all this is they were recorded in the men's room at the Muscle Shoals <laughs> Rhythm Section Studio. And the reason for it is, they, since there were three distinct pieces and they had to work around Boz's vocal and the, the, the great rhythm section of Muscle Shoals. And they couldn't make it right. And because they so wanted in a professional way to make it work, they kept moving Dwayne to different places. And eventually the sound that came from this bathroom <laughs> with the echoes off the walls was exactly what they're looking for. That's what the pros do. You know, they, they, they excel by just doing the best they can possibly do at the moment. That's amazing. That's a great story. Um, kind of quickly, we're, you know, we're at uh, an hour after we finally got started here. Um, how, 
how has well, first of all, when did when did you leave the uh, the record industry and 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 are you completely retired now? Do you do other things or what? No, I, I'm trying to do consultancy work uh, in media, um, so we can stay in the house on the lake that we purchased a lot a long time ago, and and not downsize to the point of, of living in a trailer someplace. Um, but my my time when and I'll I'll try and shorthand this, but after I became president of Mercury and was uh, three years at, at uh, Polygram and EVP of the entire company. And then they made one of their many death wishes and they fired the chairman who was my boss or president who was my boss. And fortunately, CBS wanted me to, to come back. So I came back as head of marketing for Columbia and was responsible for promotion and, and everything but the creation of the record. And I did that through the sale of CBS Records to Sony. And Walter Yetnikoff had me stay on, and I did a new deal. And one of the difficulties was Tommy Matola, the manager, who had a real good relationship with Walter, came in as president of the company. And he and I had fought terrifically when he was dealing with a new artist that, that we had in the UK who we wanted treated like Barbara Streisand. And it didn't work, and all the problems always came up to my desk. So in any event... I stayed through the transition from CBS to Sony and the, then Don Einer coming in and running Columbia. And at some point uh, they made me head of maybe senior VP of international marketing for all U.S. artists outside the U.S., which I loved because we were still flying first class everywhere and staying in all the best places and, and having all the U.S. artists to represent outside the U.S. was terrific. And I did very well at it. And then out of the blue, Mickey Shuloff, who was chairman of uh, Sony Software Worldwide and Sony US, came to me with an offer, and I put that in quotes, to join him to be a bridge between the film company, the music company, and the electronics company. Wow. And, so, and I did that in, I'm going to say, 91. So from... 73 when cbs hired me away from radio to 91 i was all music and then 91 i joined mickey and i was still dealing with all the music companies and film companies and all that sort of thing but in an entirely different role and i stayed with that until he left and then tokyo hired me to do uh consultancy work on media and i did that until they decided they're going to go a different direction so and i've been looking ever since Instead of going out and getting a job, I've been looking ever since to find something uh, that works and has a huge payoff. And haven't done it, but I'm still scratching at the ground. You still have your lovely home and, as you always say, your child bride. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I the complaints are, are minimal. I love where we are. Uh, we're 55 miles northeast of New York City on the border with Connecticut and uh, on a lake, and, and it's, it's terrific. I do occasionally miss the action, but on the other hand, it's so changed. It's not the business I was in right. those decades ago. So there'd be no place for me now at all, because as I say, radio is completely different, and uh, retail is everything but gone. 
Right. I'll, I'll tell you, you had asked me a couple of vignettes uh, about yeah. the business on the other side. I, I thought I'd pass along a scorpion's tale that I don't think I told you. Um, when I joined Mercury, one of the first bands that I signed was John Cougar Mellencamp. Um, it was a story all on his own. But I signed the Scorpions. And I signed them because the guy, in, the head of A&R, who was brilliant, he brought Rush in, he, just fabulous. He came to me and played a blues track that, and I'm a sucker for those. And I signed them. And what happened is they had been with both EMI Capital and RCA in the U.S. and worldwide and had never been a success. And they were a great live band, but they just couldn't sell records. And my guy assured me that the one they were making now was going to break them through if, if we really did a good job on it. So I signed him for relatively next to nothing. And the, the intriguing part of the story is they were they had a tour because they were so good live, already arranged, it was coming up, and we had to get the record out quickly. And I had never seen the cover, and it came to me from Germany, and it was done by Hypnosis, which is the band, I, uh, the group I referred to earlier, <coughs> who did all the Pink Floyd stuff and the really yeah. bizarre stuff. And the cover for the Love Drive album, which you can find yet today, showed a guy in a, uh, a tuxedo, a dinner jacket, in a Daimler or some other limousine. And the woman he's next to is bare-breasted. And he's pulling a hunk of gum from one of her nipples across the car to oh. him. Oh, my God. And that, that was my album cover on a band <laughs> I'm trying to break who's never been successful. And I went goofy but we didn't have time to do anything about it we had to get the damn thing out so i used a pink floyd trick i covered the album at no small expense with a kind of purple shrink wrap so it was still the album cover but it would go in places like music land and sears and target and other places without them going batshit yeah and the people at tower records and uh, Record Bar and Camelot, who were into the business, they were fine with it. They loved it to death. <laughs> so fortunately, the band was so good, and we supported them really well, not only with airplay, but tour support, that the, the album started selling terrifically. <laughs> and the real problem came when, I'm going to say, Mrs. Smith in uh, Muskegon went to a Target to get the Love Drive Scorpions album for her little Jimmy because he really had to have it. Took it home and happened to be around when he took the shrink wrap off. Saw the woman, the gum, and went completely nuts. She calls the chain. They call the distributor. The distributor calls, and it. I mean, it's it. Lawsuits are being threatened everywhere. They're never going to carry it again. And so, fortunately, it was so big they couldn't avoid it. And we. I went out and got a, an album with a scorpion on the cover, which was not really creative, but it was just to get it out, to yeah. be able to tell those retailers that you're safe, you're protected from these boobs, that it's going to go in all the stores. And so it was a it was a monster success, again, because the band was great live and we supported it. The upshot to the story is for the next album, 
the band had wanted to do something bizarre. They went to hypnosis again. They promised me it would be acceptable. And they understood the problem. And they really appreciated the fact that they were suddenly a hit band, a hit artist. <laughs> I got the album artwork, and it was a, a, a photo of a man from the waist down <laughs> with a German shepherd or schnauzer, some long-nosed right in his crotch <laughs> and a woman behind him. And it was once again too late. It was by hypnosis and too late to change to get it out. And, and I couldn't do the, the shrink wrap trip again, but the band was so big at that point that we were successful with it. But I mean, in dealing with artists, you got to deal with their artistry, you know, with what they believe represents their work. You have to kind of balance commercial realities against all that stuff. And sometimes it's okay and sometimes it isn't. Well, sure, they're looking for something that's never been done before. They're looking uh, to uh, break the mold, as it were. Well, I, I will tell you, there's not an artist that I know of any consequence that doesn't believe his or her or their record is the greatest record that's ever been done when they finish it. I mean, they have to have that. They have to think creatively while they're making it that it's that good. And anybody who doesn't think that is a problem. So you've got to somehow balance the realities of the commercial world with the creative world. Wow. So you miss all that a little bit? Oh, I, I, you have to. I had so many good memories. Of, I, you know, I'll just tell you, in, in the same area, same arena, when I had Mellencamp, when he was still John Cougar, and I signed him as a production deal through Rod Stewart, who had been with Mercury originally before he went with Warners and became a worldwide giant. And I was in New York with his managers, with my wife, with Carol, listening to his second release, which was good, not great, but we could something we could work with. And he went off to go play, which John did on a regular basis, and left us in a room alone. And the two managers played a song for me, and it was crying by uh, who wrote uh, American Apple Pie. Uh, uh, oh, damn. How can I not think of this? I'll come up with his name before the end. But the guy who became legendary for... Uh, American Pie, you're talking about? Yes, yes. Don McLean. You know, that's it. Okay. Yeah. He had, he had been... Relatively cold. He had a couple of mid-chart records along the way, but he did Roy Orbison's Crying. Now, I'm not sure how much was the booze and the wine and the late hours, but I heard it and I just lost it. And I could have it for next to nothing. But I was also smart enough to know, don't, don't listen to something after you've been drinking and something that you're emotionally attached to and make a decision. So the next morning, I brought it in and gave it to my two A&R guys who were really good. One guy from the UK who had studied American music all his life and, and the other guy who just had really terrific ears and said, listen to it, come back and tell me, should I take it? And there's next to no money involved. And they both came back and said, pass. And I said, what? I love this song. This is one of the great songs of all time and one of the great artists of all time. And we have it for next to no What are you talking about? It's a, it's a, it may be a hit, but there's nothing else on the album that's going to happen that's going to get sustained airplay. Pass. And I was pissed off, 
but I passed because why do you hire people in those kinds of roles if you're not going to listen to them? Mm-hmm. And everything was okay for a while. And Jimmy Einer, the pr- producer guy, not the promotion guy, had a, a, a deal for his label, his production deal with RCA, and they put it out. And the record started screaming up the charts. And it was going higher and higher. And as it got close to the top five, my two guys who passed on it to me both had to go to either Slovenia or Czechoslovakia to check an artist because they didn't want to be around when it went number one. And it did. And the whole idea of passing on a number one record I could have for next to nothing had me had me nuts, had me nuclear. I mean, failure, kill them, throw them. And they eventually came back. And I forgave them. And as it turned out, they were right. RCA spent a bloody fortune trying to do a follow-up. It never came through. Therefore, the album never sold. And he went back to being a uh, mediocre artist. I mean, that that stuff comes with the business. Sure. You can, you can go to a certain amount of it, you know, on your own. Now, you can also get very lucky, and I'll make this brief. You remember the Iran... Uh, the, the, the hostage right. situation. Okay. About the time that that was resolved, Ronald Reagan made the announcement and they were going to be freed. Mm-hmm. Celebrate by Cool and the Gang, a, a, a mid range band, R&B band at best. We put that record out, got us some promote, and it became the celebratory theme of that whole period. Yeah. I mean, it, it, that was being played all the time. And that then set up Ladies Night and Tulane and the other hits. They became a giant band. Can I say I was a genius? No. Can I say I was lucky to it? Yes. So that's the other side of the game. Wow. And it's been great talking with you. And we're going to do it some more just, you know, just, to, just to talk because so much time has passed since, since, uh, we've had an opportunity to do this and I, I really, really do appreciate it. Is there anything you want to add or, you know, I would, I would only, I'll give you one more if you've got the time and a recording yeah. for it. Yeah. Um, it, and it's part of the, and this is respect to you and others who happen to be great at what they do, but they're good citizens. I had found in my career as a program director and disc jockey and music director that, the really the, the great talents are the ones who were the most difficult to deal with. Yeah. And I'm thinking that Lee Baby Sims, who you may or may not be familiar with, uh, Lee was a run out of one market after another by doing something outrageous on the air. But he always got huge listener base and numbers. And he happened to be in San Diego in the mid to late 60s. And I know this is true because the guy at Negatively Affected was one of my dearest friends. He was doing Afternoon Drive at KCBQ, and Robert L. Collins, my friend, was doing 6 to 9 or 6 to 10, the, the night rock jock. And they used to have the Hooper surveys, which you may know something about. Yeah. And the, the difference between them and ARB and, and others is that Pulse is that they are telephone coincidental surveys. Right. You don't write anything down that they have an army of people during the survey period, which is usually a week, was usually a week. And they call and say, do you have the radio on? Who are you listening to? What do you think? Et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. and from that comes ratings. Lost you again. What? Lee was was on. Got me? Yeah. Okay. The Monday that the survey, the Hooper survey started in the San Diego area, and he went on the air and he started talking about a little puppy that he got. And his his visuals, his oral visuals were just exceptional. The eyes, the, the sounds that it makes, the, the fluffy and the feet that, I mean, he made this dog sound like the most important thing in life. And he was so happy to have it. The Tuesday he comes on and says, you know, I've been thinking about it. I'm a disc jockey. I live alone. I have an erratic life. I, I, I can't handle this dog. And it would be crazy for me to keep it. I'm going to give it away. And he makes an announcement that people should either write in or come to the station and leave their qualifications if they want the dog. He choose who gets the dog. So Wednesday, Thursday, he's on and on doing his regular show, brilliant as always, but talking about the puppy, the little puppy. And he has people crazy and TV's covering it. The newspapers are covering it. It's just yeah. become this big deal. Yeah. And on Friday, he comes on and doesn't mention the puppy. For the first hour, maybe, and people are calling the station. Who's going to get the puppy? What's happening? Tell us. Tell us what's going on. And he doesn't mention. And he finally brings it up midway through the show and says, in effect, you know, and I'm paraphrasing like crazy, but we were going to give away my little puppy, Rufus, or whatever his name was, today. But I, 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 mean, I can't go on. I can't explain it. And he goes on like that through the rest of the show until the next to the last break commercial break before he leaves. And he says something again about, you know, today was the day we were going to give away to find a home for my puppy. And I love it. And Oh God, I can't deal with this. He stops, hits a record, does a commercial break, hits another record. And just before the top of the hour comes back on and says, I, 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 I'm having trouble handling this because I, I so love this little puppy. And, it was everything, and, and I wanted to give it a good home, and so many of you people responded. And unfortunately, mid-afternoon today, when Robert L. Collins, who was the jock who followed him, drove in in his Range Rover oh. and ran over my puppy. Oh, no. <laughs> he hits the ID, hits the record, takes out <laughs> his earphone, and walks away, leaving Robert L. standing there, <laughs> knowing he's going to get death threats from next <laughs> It was horrific. Bob told me he had to get police to take him home from the station. People were waiting outside to beat the thud. And, of course, there was no puppy. Of course. <laughs> was, oh, my it God. Was Lee, it was Lee Baby. And the ratings for that Hooper survey uh, went through the roof. I mean, he's it, just one of those great talents. Yeah. That's incredible. What a great story. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much, Bob. I'll uh, we'll talk again soon. Okay. Good to speak to you. You're welcome. Have a good one, and we'll. Right. I look forward to it. All right. Good. Thanks again. All the best. Bye. Cheers. Bye.